This is Alan Cozen, the author of Got That Something, How the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand Changed Everything, and you're listening to Fab Four Free For All, brackets, the brackets. And welcome to another edition of the Fab Four Free For All. We are a weekly all-talk Beatles and related podcasts, internet show, whatever you want to call us, just as long as you call us and find us. I am your moderator for today's show, Mitch Axelrod, and joining me as they always are, and I wish they weren't, are... Rob Leonard. And... Tony Gerardo. Because I could do just a solo show and do just as well no, as you these. Could. I could not, not. Absolutely not. Anyway, we are very happy, excited. I know you can't see that on the radio, but believe me, we are. And really honored to have a... Special guest tonight. We have a great guest tonight. We, we do. Well, we don't know until he starts talking. No, no. He's a great guest. <laughs> yes. I mean, he's a great name. You know, let's see what he does, you know, before we start giving him all the accolades. Nice. On the phone tonight with us, we have a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. We have never... Well, we have, but we uh, we talked to Ringo, and, but prior to him being as a solo artist in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But we have a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, a member of Cheap Trick, and a solo artist... We have Bun E. Carlos on the phone. Right, How yeah. are you, Bunny? Hey. Thank you, Minions. How are you guys doing? <laughs> minions. I, I am actually yellow. <laughs> short. And believe me, my wife calls me despi- despicable. Whoa. So we want to talk to you about a bunch of stuff, but the first thing we have to know is, how does a guy named Brad M. Carlson become Bun E. Carlos? You get into Paul Bunyan when you're about four years old. <laughs> kind of rolls out of control from there, basically. Wait, with an axe? The whole nine yards, Babe the Blue Ox, you know, <laughs> all, that, all that cool stuff. Yeah, you know, I was a kid, and I thought that was neat, and everyone started calling me Bunyan, and they called me Bun, and uh, Tom started calling me Bunny, and uh, I just changed it to B-U-N, middle initial E, and two guys in the band were called... Uh, the band Sick Man of Europe. What a great name. <laughs> Two guys were called Nielsen, and one was called Peterson, and if there was a Carlson, it would sound like a bunch of Swedes. <laughs> so, uh, I became a Carlos instead. Yeah. It's like a Swedish law firm is what it sounds <laughs> yeah, like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, really. Nielsen and Peterson and <laughs> Carlson, Carlson Esquire. You know, most people don't know, and I didn't even know this until we did some research, that you actually are left-handed, aren't you? Yes, I am. Born left-handed. So you, But you play both ways, So, but there's nobody better to talk about Ringo later on in the show than you because Ringo is also left-handed, and you know he obviously has a different style because of that, and I'm sure you've encountered some of the same playing idiosyncrasies as he did. Oh, yeah. There's, there's many left-handers at my age, and I'm, I'm 66 this year. Uh, started back in the day when they, people just set up drums right-handed, so you had to learn on a left-handed kit, and... Uh, for myself and a couple other people, it really all became clear when we went and saw the Beach Boys, because Dennis Wilson did that, too. Yeah, you could see very clearly he's left-handed, but, you know, Ringo, you couldn't really tell until until you really dove into what he was playing, and then you realized there's an extra beat in there somewhere. Yeah, you tried to play like Ringo, uh, you lead left-handed, so you suddenly notice you can do all those licks, and most guys can't. Most guys know? can't, exactly. Now, I found an article from 1977 from either Cream or Trouser Press, and the article was called, Do Cheap Trick Hate the Beatles? <laughs> and I don't know if you remember that. Ira or Jim Green or someone wrote it, yeah. I, Ira Robbins, I oh, believe. Yeah. And 
they never, it's funny because they interviewed you guys, but they just say musician, other musician. They don't attribute anything to anybody. So what was that all about? I mean, you know, you actually said that you were, I think, more into The Who than The Beatles, but what was that whole article about? Who oh boy. Yeah, Ira, <laughs> Ira had his opinions on what, what it should all be, and uh, he wasn't afraid to express them. But, uh, you know, he's a real knowledgeable guy. He's really into the horse lips, so everything's kind of seen through these tinted glasses of those. But, uh, you know, we had uh, the Beatles were mentioned in Tax Man, and, of course, it was the same song title. And uh, the previous year, Epic was starting to get frothy about Cheap Trick when they signed us, and it's going to be great. They're going to be bigger than the Beatles, which is like, you know, oh. bigger than Dylan. It's a kiss of death. You oh, know, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Wow. So uh, I'm, I'm sure we were downplaying that stuff a bit, especially Rick, you know, because Rick wrote all the songs. So you go, yeah, you know, they're just big Beatle guys, and it, it makes some, it affects our legitimacy or whatever at the start. Uh, you know, it was that kind of junk. So yeah. the, the worst thing the, that I remember with you guys, Bunny, was some article in one of the magazines that had, who are the new Beatles, the Bay City Rollers or Cheap Trick? Which was brilliant. It's like, wow, that's a little scary, a little twisted. Really? Well, everybody became the new Beatles. Oh, yeah, the Knack. knack. Everybody was the Knack. They were for a little while. Yeah, yeah. I mean, thank God you guys weren't on Capitol or else (laughs) you saw what they did did to the Knack. They put out the exact same rainbow label and had them in their suits and ties. But it's it's good to know that after all these years, Cheap Trick marches on and and has a huge legacy. And just just were elected to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And just were elected to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, you know, I mean, I'm a big Knack fan, but Uh, the legacy is not uh, They're not getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. No, and the Bay City Rollers, I don't think so. But anyway. 77, I was a big Who fan, but, you know, the Beatles were, for Cheap Trick and everybody of our age, they, they were the, the shining beacon at the top of the hill, and everything else was underneath them, and uh, it was kind of, they were the template for everything, so it kind of went without saying a, a lot of times in those days, and only when the press brought it up that it kind of seemed to be a big deal, but everybody we knew, you know, like, everything was based on the Beatles for us. You know, Tom was a big Beatle fan, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, Tom's a big Beatles fan. We were all big Beatles and Stones fans, and uh, I'd seen Rick at a Stones gig in '65, and and uh, of course I saw the Beatles in '65, and it was just you know we were, we were gobsmacked by them and all that. But uh, chicks dug the Stones kind of guys around here, you know, because they were the, the assholes and stuff. You know, they, didn't, <laughs> they didn't go for the nice guys. They like the dirty boys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I tried to like be an that, asshole, so. and they still didn't like me. <laughs> <laughs> Bunny, did you have the the February ninth, nineteen sixty four moment? I mean, we read about it. You know, Bruce Springsteen wrote it up in his in his biography, Elvis Costello. Did you have yeah. the that was the epiphany? Yeah, you know, we didn't have CBS in Rockford. We only had two stations at that time, and uh, so we had to tune to Madison and get it all like real real grainy on the screen. And yeah, we did the first three songs, and of course, me and my brothers and sisters were all like flipping out. And we, we'd heard a couple t- tunes on the radio, so. This was just like icing on the cake, and my famous story from that night is at the end of the night, and we're all blathering about the Beatles. My mom goes, you won't even remember these guys in November. You know? <laughs> and uh, she later denied that, too. But uh, God bless her, she's up in somewhere, hopefully with angel wings going, he's telling that story again. But uh, Maybe that, she's that right next happen. to John Lennon right telling that story. Right next to John telling that story, all right. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, Imagine uh, that. So, Bunny, what led you to be the drummer, or a drummer? Uh, not a guitar player or a bass player or a trumpet player. I don't or, know. or an accountant. Or, or an accountant. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah well, accountant. I took that twice in college and 
dropped out both times. But uh, <laughs> in 63, my dad took me and us kids to a concert at Guilford High School, and uh, they had the, the high school band, and they had three drum sets set up, and they did a thing, and that caught my eye immediately. And then I remember the twist. I, I was fixating on a hi-hat when my brother had a single of the twist. I was like, what, what is this cool sound? Hmm. And uh, there was some stuff in the fall of 63 when I was, you know, you're going to bed with a transistor radio type of thing, you're hearing songs, and, and when I saw the Beatles, it was just like, yeah, i got to get some drums. You know, like, Ma, you got to get me a snare drum, you know, for my birthday in June, that kind of thing. So it was pretty much just, uh, didn't take much thinking. It was just, that's what I had to play, was drums. That's pretty cool. So you actually were kind of on board with the idea of playing music and even playing drums during that period where everybody kind of talks about there was nothing at all happening in music. You know, like before the Beatles came in, there was nothing. But there was still music that was going to inspire, I imagine. Yeah, I had older brother and sister, so they played stuff, and my mom was real musical, and I taught myself piano when I was about 10, you know, one finger, two fingers, three fingers. When I joined the band in junior high school, previous to Ed Sullivan, the previous September, I wanted to be a drummer, and they were like, no, nah, we got enough of those, you know, it's, it's tuba or French horn, so <laughs> I, I picked French horn, so, you know, I was, I was into music anyway, but uh, this was like uh, flipping a light on, it's right? Just, you know. So you had the John Entwistle thing going on, too, the French horn. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> now, didn't you meet Keith Moon and help him when he came to your high school in 68? Well, they played the Kinetic Playground in Chicago, and I was, was between my junior and senior year, and we we drove into the gig, and, we got, of course, we got there about 3 in the afternoon, and we're sitting outside of the front door, and, yeah, there's roadies walking in and out, and guys with English accents, and then I'm... <laughs> I used my famous, I'm a student correspondent for Hit Parader Line, and walked in with one of the roadies and stuff like that. I used to ask to do interviews with bands if I could, and often got in dressing rooms and stuff, you know, when I was a kid to chat and stuff. I interviewed the Yardbirds and the Birds when they were in Rockford, and, you know, some bands like that. And, wow. You know, I remember stuff like that. So it was fun to talk to these guys and see what was going on. Okay, so Rob, are you and I going to flip for it for who gets the Bunny Carlos radio segment on our show? Because Bunny's going to send us those interviews. Of course, of course. So we can air those, right, Bunny? Is that, do you still have, seriously? Yeah, still, they didn't have tape recorders in those days. Oh, you know, this was, oh like, wow, that's tape. right. Yeah, you were taking, yeah. You'd you, have you, to you, bring the giant wallet sack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 1965, so yeah. You know. Yeah, well, you know what the Beatles recorded Hollywood Bowl on. Yeah, so, right. There you go. But you know what? So now you get past, I mean, obviously, the live album brings you guys to prominence by mistake because obviously it was an import from Japan but everybody yeah. fell in love with it but you know what it comes to 1980 and all shook up is done and you change directions sort of and you now you get produced by George Martin of all people and engineered by Jeff Emmerich what was that like was that a band decision well we did three albums with Tom Worman we did one in uh, like June 77 did one in the late 77 and uh, having a night, and then uh, the end of '78, we did uh, Dream Police, and right. we were kind of ran ran the track with Worman, and that was kind of done. By Dream Police, we we're starting to bark at each other and stuff like that, you know, band versus producer and sure. stuff. And uh, so, yeah, Budokan took off, and Dream Police was was going to take off, according to the label, you know. And <laughs> so it's time to get ready to right around the time Dream Police was finally getting released at the end of '79. They're like, "What about the next record?" And, Worman had wanted us after Budokan came out. He called up and goes, you guys got to go in the studio and we should get Need Your Love off Dream Police because it's on Budokan. Uh. And you should cut Day Tripper and something else and put it on there because, you know, that version of Day Tripper you guys do is just great. And we were like, no, we're not going to, that album's in a can and it's 
behind us, and we're, we're moving on to the next record, and you're not producing us, sorry. <laughs> and we told the label we wanted George and Jeff, and they're like, you guys are crazy. No way. Said, What's wrong with Worman? And we said, look, you know, we've kind of run the path here with Worman, and we, we want to get someone different, and this is the guys we want, you know. It's like, who's the best producer in the world? George Martin, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, we went for that, and the label, the label was balking, and we just finally told them, look at We'll pay for the guy. We'll go record it, and we'll turn in the tape, and you give us the dough if that's what we got to do. You know, it was like starting to get kind of acrimonious there. You know? Was it different going from an American producer to an English producer? Yeah, much different. Uh, George was American guys were a little more brash, uh, a little more toe in the line for the label. You know, George he didn't care who the label was. You know, he had nothing to do with Epic or CBS or Sony, and uh, he was a real nice guy. He, the only things he kind of wanted at the start was his price was expensive. Back for those days, it was like fifty grand, sure, probably a, a point or something. And and uh, he, he goes, uh, yeah, you know, if I orchestrate the stuff, I'm probably going to copyright it and take a credit for that. And we were like, yeah, well, you know, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, that was no problem with us. And of course, working with him, then points of reference were great. I remember stopped this game. Tom goes, you know, turns to Jeff and George and goes. Uh, how did Paul get that sound on rain, you know? Well, he had a big bass bottom, and we tried micing it through a speaker, you know, 4x12 with a Rickenbacker, you know, and Tom got his Rickenbacker out, you know, and stuff. So, you know, it was things like that. We had great points of reference because everybody knew everything by the Beatles, and uh, so, yeah, we thought it was just the greatest thing in the world. All right, so I have to throw in then, Bunny, how much precious studio time that you were paying a lot of money for did you uh, lose hearing anecdotes? Because <laughs> you must have oh, wanted was, to hear was, all the stories. It was Montserrat. Yeah, it was Montserrat. They own the place. So oh, that's like, right. No, yeah. no hourly charge. So right. Just, right. As long as you're on schedule, who cares? You right, know, right, thing. right. And there's a couple good Beatles stories out of that, of course, the trip down there. One was the first day uh, I'm staying in this big house with where George and Judy Martin stay and Jeff Emmerich stays. There's like six bedrooms and all this stuff. And uh, me, me and the roadies are staying there. And we're, we had these little mokes, they're like Jeeps without a roof, without a top half on them. We're riding to the studio in the morning. It was Jeff and me and a couple of roadies. And I turn to Jeff and I go, Yeah, hey, I got some Beetle bootlegs here. And <laughs> what do you guys think of those? And I said, I got these deck audition tapes. And I said, I got some Hey Jude rehearsals here. And he goes, Ah, oh, they must be fake. <laughs> I, just started, I started laughing and he goes what, what's so funny about that and I said these aren't fake and he goes oh come on they can't be real there's some guys doing that and I said here borrow them you know and the next day he comes back to me and he's like I can't believe this he's like this is unbelievable we haven't heard these DECA tapes since they did them and wow. would you get this Hey Jude stuff and I said look at I said I probably got 50 bootlegs at home with buckets of this stuff on it I said I'm, I'm really into this stuff and can I can I borrow these and make copies for George? And I was like, yeah, no problem. And so they kind of knew then that we kind of where we were coming from, or at least I was anyway. You know, it's, uh, so yeah, we probably drove them nuts by the end of the album. You know, asking them stuff. <laughs> yeah. Bunny, I wanted to go back. Just um, what what were your first Beatle album or Beatles singles that you got as a young person? Well, probably the first five. You know, that were the top five there. So. She loves you on Swan and the the one on Tolly what was that Twist and Shout and yeah, yeah. two Capital singles and whatever the f- the fifth one was Please Please Me on VJ I guess or something you know, yeah like that and and then uh, the first album and then I remember uh, these guys that lived on the lane for me my age we hung out they they had the VJ album by Summertime and there was a big thing that summer on WLS or that spring when uh, they were filming Hard Days Night 
the DJs call them on the radio, you know, on the film set and talk to them like on a Friday night. And so there we were in front of the radio for three hours listening to them, you know, talk about the movie and this and that, you know. It was, you know, that spring of 64 was Beetle, 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 Dave Clark, Five Stone, Beetle, 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 just 24 hours a day. That's all you wanted to know about. And WLS, for those who don't know that radio station as a top 40 station, we're from New York. We know WABC, maybe WMCA. Can you describe that station and what it meant to that whole area, not just you know Chicago, but that whole area? It was a clear channel yeah, station. Yeah, Chicago had two big stations, and WLS was the big one. And uh, Art Roberts and Ron Riley were the... Ron and Art, the 6 to 9 and 9 to midnight, were the DJs. And uh, WCFL had Joel Sebastian and a couple other guys. And they were the voice of labor station in Chicago. But LS was the big one with a big wattage. I remember we heard it in Montserrat the first night we got there and tried to call them, and there were no phone. There was only one phone on the island, and I got turned off at 9, so we couldn't do that. Wow. <laughs> wow, that's nice. We were, you know, just, yeah, we lived by the radio, and uh, whatever they said was, and I remember they were playing, you know, they whipped out Love Me Do one day, and it was like, what is, oh, we've heard about this, and, you know, things the like Ringo that. The Ringo version or the Andy White version? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, it was on it single. Was, it was, actually, it was a Ringo version, because it was a single. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. Well, I was going to ask this. I know you're the archivist for Cheap Trick, and, you know, Bunny's bootlegs, but you mentioned Beetle bootlegs. Do you still collect? Yeah, I, I still get a bunch of that stuff when, when I see something that interests me, but these days I'm... Figuring pretty much, I probably heard about ninety percent of it, so uh, I just don't buy anything with a new title anymore. So you do all shook up, and it sounds there are a couple of you know very beatly. I mean, Robin oh, always absolutely. sounds beatly when he sings sometimes. But then you go all the way to, I mean, you record forty-two years after the release of Sgt. Pepper, but you do the whole album on the forty-second anniversary of Sgt. Pepper. How did that come about? Yeah, the Hollywood Bowl approaches. And probably what 2005, they they came to a gig in LA and said, "We want to do this thing next summer." You know, at the bowl, we want to do hot, we want you to do Sergeant Pepper. We want a band to do it, and you guys would be just great for it. And what do you think? And uh, you know, we'll get a couple guest singers and practice with the orchestra and the whole nine yards. And we were like, "Yeah, you know, how do let's make this happen?" And uh, we did that. How did you prepare for that? I mean, did you just listen to Pepper and then go from there? It was engineered by Emmerich, so did he have any, any anything special for you to listen to that maybe you can get the parts down, or did you just know him by heart? Well, Jeff didn't really get involved much till the next year. Okay. We did, we did one more show in 07. I think we did two and six and one and seven, and then a few dates around the country, one-offs and things like that. But I got the record. Uh, I called up a couple guys and said, you know, you got any Pepper bootlegs? You know, so I got the basic track for Sergeant Pepper, stuff like that. I was like, yeah, what happens, what were they doing when the orchestra played through here, you know, and they dropped the band out, and you can hear them on there, you're going, ding, 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 you know, they just kind of pedal through the parts and I'm stuff. Sure. They drop out on the record, and, and you know, got a couple alternate takes, and just trying takes where you could try and hear what was going on. I mean, you can't tell what Ringo's doing, like in Lucy in the Sky, is that a hi-hat or a ride cymbal, or is he playing both, and, and little picky things for drums and stuff, and... And kind of the theory behind it for me, and usually for us, was if you learn a cover, is learn the cover exactly, and then, then you know what you got, and then, then start dicking around with it, you know, mess around or throw in what you think needs to be updated or something like that. So kind of did it like that. You know, I called Ludwig and ordered a set of drums that looked like Ringo's, and I called a cymbal guy and said, where can I get some 60 cymbals? And I couldn't really find any that sounded like Ringo's, so I called Zildjian, and they, they had a new line coming out. So I got I got some gear, you know, that made me sound like what I was hearing, and uh, 
you know, it's kind of like that kind of thing. You know, channel my inner Ringo. You know. <laughs> and there was a feel of that when you, you know, when you guys did Magical Mystery Tour too. Obviously, years earlier, and it yeah. was it was exactly that. It was great because you started with the you know with the base of it, you know, the the foundation of it. But you guys also made it your own, you know, which Yeah, which we, we did that one in a hurry. I remember, like, in the middle of Magical Mystery Tour, Rick and Tom, we were practicing. They go, what's the bridge? And I said, it's, I said something like, we're taking a tour of mystery. <laughs> let's, let's do that four times. And then we'll do that little jump and then go into this thing. And, right. of course, then I get the Beatles one. They do it twice, you know. <laughs> right. But there you go, you know. We, so, you know, we just jimmy with this or mess with tweak this a little that kind of stuff yeah. yeah you're going into the studio as you guys are going in to record and start to work on new material put together new albums you've got two sort of vastly different the only other person i can think of with these kind of influences would be zach starkey you know but you've got ringo and keith and do you find that you know listening to your work that kind of inhabits what you do and do you sort of find yourself kind of in two different heads when you're approaching material? Or do you kind of do the, well, what would Ringo do? do you, or is it just so ingrained in you at this point that it's just... It just becomes pretty much what, what would Ringo do, pretty much, you know. Although, you can listen to, like, my generation, and you can put on uh, Rollover Beethoven from Sweden, you know, that one oh, from yeah. 53. The drop you in. know, it could, it could be the same guy drumming on both songs, you know. That's true. Like that. I mean, when yeah. they start swinging, both guys could just swing like mad, you know, so... That's the one thing they both had in common. They were both swinging cats, and they played a little kit back in the start, you know, and stuff. But, uh, you know, just, yeah, it was kind of like try to keep it beatly, try to keep Rick from screaming too much guitar through a Beatles song. <laughs> <laughs> he had a thing, he had a lovely Rita, he, he did this <laughs> one there, and it was like, hey, Rick, you know, you're drowning everybody out on this. You're turning it into just a big... You know, so there's a little that going on too. You know, like making sure we're all on the same page, type of stuff. And then when Jeff came in the next year, he jumped down everybody's throats about the vocals. He's like, "Look, you guys, you know, you guys got the vocals right. Now we're going to fix this stuff." And boy, was that a chore, you know? Because it'd be a guest vocalist or two, and and they didn't want to know this. They were doing it this way, and Jeff wanted it to be done right. You know, the right Beatle way, the right harmonies, and the right number of parts. Sure. Yeah. So he was really good at that, and uh, then there was some goofy things like we were doing. Uh, in fact, I think that Jeff was there the first year. I take that back, but uh, he didn't really do much about the vocals. He was just more of a front of house guy. <laughs> but uh, I remember this because we had this guy that did George Harrison and Beatlemania out west. The Bowl had this guy. We wanted this guy to come and do a George tune, and he did some George tune. And then we were doing. He was doing Blackbird, and he goes thump along on the floor time after the middle part. And I remember I went to Jeff, and I go that night and I said, hey Jeff, what's that thumping sound on Blackbird? And he's like, I don't know, I don't know, you, I don't know. let me think about that. <laughs> he comes in the next morning and he's like hopping around, he's real excited and he goes, I remember what happened, we mic'd Paul's foot, I haven't thought of that in 40 years, oh this is great! You know, stuff like that, so, you know, it was always kind of cool when someone came up with a new Beatle fact or something and everybody was like, right. cause for celebration. Uh, Bunny, uh, you said when the band decided to do Sgt. Pepper, you went out and got a Ludwig drum set. What sound does that bring compared to using your regular drum set? Or is it just because Ringo had it, you were just going to use it? Is, is there a different sound? I'm not a drummer. Mitch is a drummer. I played Ludwig already, so it didn't make one bit of difference. It just it just looked like Ringo's drum set. So just when I walked up there, there was no mistake. And it wasn't my kit sitting there. It looked more like Ringo's kit. And I had cheap trick done in a Beatles file with a drop T and a trick, you know, and stuff like that. So I was like, 
Yeah, this is the Beatles rig, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Wait, have you heard any of the new Pepper that's coming out Friday? Not yet. Okay. Just be prepared to have your mind blown. Because yeah, I'm, all, I'm all set. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so you were talking about Ringo's kids, and we'll get back to some of your stuff here. But someone told me, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, and then I'll just beat the hell out of them. But someone told me you are like a historian in terms of Ringo's kits, his Ludwig kits. Well, there's one guy named Gary Estrich, is the master yeah, of it sure. all, who wrangles his kits for him. But uh, he didn't have that many, so it's not that difficult to, to be knowledgeable about Ringo's kits. Yeah, I'm, I'm, of course, way into them, too. Yeah. You know, because the first kit, you know, the first and the last kit, if I'm not mistaken, were not really the ones used a lot. It was really like the middle two, wasn't it? It was actually the second one, yeah. The, yeah. The first 22, 16, 13 kit, the, the sizes of the drums. Uh, you know, and the first snare drum, of course, got used on everything. Yeah, sure. Know? And uh, and then, of course, the last kit and calfskin heads, you know. So uh. you know, that's kind of, that's the your basic short story of Ringo, you know. <laughs> and uh, and the cymbals, you know, cymbal guys argue over them, you know. This, the first couple were... A couple of these things that were sitting around this brand and this brand, and then the roadie said, "Yeah, after that we just went out and bought Zildjian's, whatever." You know, and, and nobody can quite agree on what the third symbol is on "Let It Be." You know, is a, a medium thin, a medium, uh, all this kind of stuff. You know, so it's kind of like, yeah, you know, there you go. I could never loosen my hi hats enough to get that swish that Ringo got. I don't know if it's his well, you, feel, but I just. Never could you do it. Some thin, you got to have some thin symbols first. Yeah, like I didn't have had. that, but even when I tried it, you know, it couldn't do it. He had these little, he had these little sticks too. You know, he wouldn't play these baseball bats that guys normally play these days. You know, yeah, the sticks were a lot smaller back then. Yeah, he wasn't using Moon nylon tip from, either. But <laughs> nah, I have a Keith Moon from '68, and it's like a little pencil stick. It's a Rogers Louis Belson model. Really? And yeah, and it's just tiny. And but those things make the drum sound real clanky when you do rim shots and stuff. And, and that's another thing with Ringo. You, you can tell on records when he tuned his drums up by the way his rack time was tuned. Yeah. Stuff like that. Well, uh, one of them I, I remember reading in, like, Andy Babiuk's book or whatever it was, maybe Gary's articles, that I believe on one show the Tom was mounted upside down. Yeah, the first show, Ed Sullivan. Yeah, Ed Sullivan. Down. And, of course, at the Coliseum the gig, too, it's still upside down. You know, that Coliseum gig is just, uh, you said, that, you know, he could swing. If you watch that, we've all agreed that Coliseum show, he just is insane. I mean, in that Coliseum show. And most of the 64 tour, he just goes nuts. The Sweden dropping from the year earlier was also amazing on Long Tall Sally and stuff, but, and Roland Beethoven, but he just was a nut down that first show. Oh, yeah, you know, but by February of 64, even, it was, he was already changing as a drummer because, uh, they, once the screaming really kicked in, the kind of the drum rules kind of changed to uh, no tom toms, keep it simple. You know, yeah. like start of can't buy me love. Uh, there's no floor tom roll till the verse comes in. It's all just boom ba boom ba. Yeah, just rock drumming all the way through it and stuff. So even Ringo couldn't be Ringo, and the crowd was making too much noise. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Yeah, he tried, but you know. Oh yeah. Now one thing, Bunny, as a drummer, you know, Ringo's always talked about the idea that he doesn't like going back to do Beatles material because he doesn't necessarily remember what he did and (laughs) when you listen to a lot of the outtakes and the alternates and especially now you'll hear on pepper and and stuff ringo hardly ever really did do the same thing twice and 
I always think that people underestimate just how incredible a drummer Ringo was. But you've kind of been in a position where a lot of the Cheap Tricks music is, is a, you know, it's more complex than you know the first couple of years of Beatles material. What you guys are doing is a little more toward you know the middle era Beatles that they didn't go duplicate on stage anymore. So how do you kind of you know when you're on stage and I've seen you guys live a number of times, but you know, do you kind of try to replicate the records, or do you give yourself some leeway and say, you know what, I don't have to play the same. If Ring Ringo's okay with not playing the same thing twice, I'm okay with letting myself breathe a little bit. Yeah, you you got to kind of, you know, having been in the audience, of course, and then been on the stage, you got you got to keep it in the neighborhood, so it sounds like the same thing. Yeah, right. And then w once you've been on a big stage, you kind of like Ringo quickly realize you kind of realize what doesn't get to the audience and what does from the, the big stage. So, yeah, you can't do the little piddly little things. They, they don't translate in an, an arena or a concert hall. So you got to keep some of the stuff kind of simple. But you you got to stay true to the original. Otherwise, you know, the people, what's the point of them coming to see us? Sure. If you don't, and going in, like, when you go into the first record, that's one thing you find out with a producer. You know, you're like, well, what are we trying to do with this record? And for the first album, of course, it always is, if they come and see you, you got to sound like the record. If they got the record before they see you, you know, you got to sound like the record. If if you go see you before they get the record, when they go by the record, they get, it's got to <laughs> kind of sound like you were alive. Right. It's got to work both ways. Right. So, so you got to keep them kind of related. But what about uh, the Eagles? I mean, they always sound like the record. <laughs> they're exactly. Like I mean, the they're no well, they, they, they brought an extra. They brought an extra drummer with them, you know, in, in the last couple of years. They have Vitaly up there with. Henley, you know, so yeah, yeah, and everything was so perfect with them. I mean, they were getting applause after choruses. And stuff. <laughs> you know, but then they also amazing. get then they also get crap though for their live album because it sounded too much like the records back then. It's I not exactly it's a snooze. Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, they, they overdubbed they a lot. Over, so. They kind of overdid it. They made, they they did a great live show, but it, then it, that thing didn't translate the record. Yeah, right. Yeah. right. It's amazing. So you met Ringo once, right? Yeah, I met him uh, in 2010 when he was 70. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds so weird. Gave, gave him a snare drum that was made a month after he was born because he was always looking for snare drums from 1940. And and uh, I found one. And I was just like, ooh, he'll like this. And, you know, so how'd you set that up? Uh, Ludwig was going to see him. They they did engrave the snare drum for him as a oh, gift for with the birthday. Yeah. Some, some peace signs and stuff like that. And I said, they go, you want to go with? And <laughs> I I went in with Ludwig in 2001 when they were in Chicago and. After the show, they're like, you want to go back? And I was like, well, it's the last night of the tour. It looks like a zoo. They were filming tonight. And the Ludwig guys were kind of like, yeah, we should get home. I was like, yeah, let's <laughs> skip it. And then I was kicking myself in the ass for 10 years. Oh. So, you know, you want to go with? Yes. Can I bring, Can I give him a snare drum? Okay, yeah, no problem with us. So, yeah, I, I did. You know. And then he sold it in the auction last year. <laughs> I'm he just kidding. It. I'm just kidding. He kept it, and uh, six years later, he, he purchased another one of mine through Don Bennett that he uses on his records. It's in his home studio. Really? Wow, that's so, cool. So that's pretty cool. mine that he hasn't sold. Yeah. Did I, you, own, did, I own his 2012 tour kit. I'm sitting here looking at it. Oh, really? Did you want to buy really? the one that Ursay bought for, you know, $2 billion, whatever he spent? Yeah, if I had the money, you know. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, my God. You, you know who'd make a good all-star member? Our, our yeah. guest. Yeah. yeah. Because he always needs a second drummer, so... That's true. You know, it could happen. Yeah. No, he's got Bissonette, he had yeah. Kirk. Yeah. 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 Funny you know, in there. A, a drummer thing with the Beatles in the 60s, and it happened for a bunch of fans of, of different bands, happened to me with the Beatles and the Stones. We'd see these guys and pictures of them or go to see them in concert, and then I'd go to buy the cymbals like they use. So for Ringo, 
you see him playing, I was like, okay, that's a 22 and a 20, and I go buy it, and I saw the stones, that's a 22 and an 18, and I go buy it, and then, <laughs> then 10 years later or 20 years later, you meet these guys, or you see more pictures, and you realize they're all about 5 feet 5, <laughs> and, and, and the symbols, it wasn't a 22 and a 20, it was a 20 and an 18, it was the same with Charlie, it, the symbols look big next to these guys, sure, they're it's, little all, it's all relative, right? What about the, uh, the Sgt. Pepper video, or the Hello Goodbye video, where he uses that little tiny bass, that's it. Yeah, and then, oh yeah, you yeah, know, well, Ringo, he, uh, he always did something cool like that for videos, you know. He, he was born for movies. Funny, <laughs> <laughs> why, why did you guys decide to choose a Day Tripper as a song to cover for your EP? Well, you know, when we started out, we did, you know, You Can't Do That, and I'm Down. We did probably a dozen Beatle tunes back in the old days, and uh, and they all got pretty much pitched, except uh, Day Tripper, we didn't learn that probably like 75. I remember... Uh, I got the ELO quasi bootleg German release of uh, Live in Long Beach, and sure. they did Day Tripper, and it had that cool version of Day Tripper. Yeah. So we kind of that's that's where we got that from. Was cool. ELO. But wow. that wasn't released until the EP of Everything Works. Yeah, we just did it live, and uh, we kind of turned a solo, not like ELO, we did more like a shapes of thing type of solo in it by the Yardbirds because we were massive Yardbirds fans, probably second only to the Beatles. And uh, we recorded a show in 79 in Chicago and with multi-track, and we got the tapes, and uh, somebody hadn't bothered to, like, turn the level up in the machine, and needles were, like, barely moving. <laughs> so uh, we wanted to do that EP, and we needed a live track from that year, and so it was like me, Rick, and Robin were there. Tom didn't show up, and uh, we just went down. We got some gear together out of the basement of the studio, and cut the track in, in the afternoon and threw the Chicago applause on top of it. Wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so it's really more of a studio cut than a... It's a fake live cut, we call it. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> like, 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 Frampton, alive. like Frampton comes alive, you know? Yeah, right. I'm kidding. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it was like the B-side of the Dave Edmonds first single. He had that big black or black bill, whatever it's called. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. He was doing yep. everything by himself with his canned applause at the front and back. And we were going to do that for Speak Now on our first album, and then we decided... Yeah, let's just leave the applause off. The track sounds pretty good. And uh, <laughs> the idea of a fake live album was always kind of funny. We always thought that was hilarious. Yeah, so. so, you know, I got I to gotta bring you back to a time that could be really exciting, but also a little, you know, sad, you know, working, obviously, in 1980 with Rick and then John Lennon, uh, you know, doing I'm Losing You. What was that like? Yeah. Well, you know, I got, I got the call in June from Jack, like early June. I were at O'Hare Airport and it was like, the tour manager, hey, Bunny, get on the phone here. And Jack was like, you know, John's coming out of retirement. We're going to make this record. Don't tell anybody because he doesn't have a label yet. And we should CBS say it's Jack really Douglas. Wants... We should say it's Jack, yeah, Jack Douglas. I mean, Jack, Jack yeah. yeah. CBS really wanted John because they had Paul and Ringo and George on, like, affiliated labels, basically. They, want, they were trying to get all four Beatles away from Capitol. That was like a would have been a big coup in the record industry for some reason in 1980. But uh, Jack was, yeah, don't tell anybody. So, of course, I... And I got off the phone, hey, you guys! You know? <laughs> and uh, like, like a month later, uh, Jack called up and said, you know, bring Rick. You know, okay, no problem. So that, that's kind of how that happened. Uh, we had this song called Loser. It is boom, 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 boom. And, and uh, the, band, the band they had in, in the studio couldn't get a feel. They couldn't get any version of Losing You, and they couldn't get any feel for this Yoko tune. And Jack goes, well, I know this guy that can nail this Yoko tune. And he goes, in fact, these guys could probably nail John's tune, too. And it was kind of like that's how it all started. So we got kind of brought in 
kind of like as arrangers and musicians, kind of, which was hilarious when you look at it. You know, <laughs> but, uh, that's kind of how that all started. You know. What did you think of the track when you first heard it? Not your it, version, just just you know John do, doing yeah, a demo. Play, we played us. He had this jacket of tape. Uh, they whipped it out in the studio. John down in the Bahamas with two ghetto blasters and. He'd record into one with acoustic and vocal and then aim it at the other one and overdub himself. Do a little two track. So all the songs on Double Fantasy and Milk and Honey were on this cassette. Mm. And uh, and a couple others like, you know, Grow Old With Me and stuff. So they just played us that and said, you know, John was like, hey, we can't get this feel for this. Well, first we met him and he goes, you're the guy from Cheap Trick. He goes, they told me your name, but they wouldn't tell me what band you were in. And we, we were like, chuffed, I guess you would call it, because we were like, ooh, you know, <laughs> he's heard of us, you know, that, yeah. that was amazing, and of course, Rick immediately said to him, hey, you know, John, we wanted you to produce our first album, and Jack told us you had just retired, you know, wow. we did, we thought, he was our choice for producer for the first record, because we wanted it to sound like, the whole record to sound like Cold Turkey, kind of, you know, or Instant Karma or something, you know, cool. and, uh, we, you know, and he'd retired, so we, that was out of the question, and in fact, when we were doing the first album, we were storing my drums in the, the linen room at the record plant. Me and Tom went in there one day. They let us in all by ourselves, and we just walked in this. It was about the size of a, like a big bed, someone's big bedroom, and there was all his tapes. <laughs> oh, and I was yeah. like, here's cold turkey. Here's whatever gets you through the night. Here's some jam with Mick Jagger from like two years ago. And here's this, and it was just like, we could take one of these. You know? <laughs> Put it in our, just walk right out of here, and it was like, you know, if we got caught, you know, our musical careers would be over. <laughs> Maybe maybe that's oh. where Paul got the, the idea for Broad Street. You know, sorry, <laughs> sorry that we we always have to bring up that horrible movie every once in a while. I bought that CD off used a couple of weeks ago because I wanted to hear what Ringo did on that stuff. And man, now I know why that thing's out of print. That thing is brutal. <laughs> well, if you watch the movie during Paul when Paul does, you know, Tony alluded to. Well, he didn't like to do Beatles stuff for a while, so. Paul's in there doing, you know, Here, There, and Everywhere, which obviously doesn't have drums. Right. And, and in the scene in the movie, Ringo is looking for his drumsticks. And it goes <laughs> through, you know, for no one, and there's still no drums on that anyway. And then finally they get to Wanderlust, and Ringo plays because he finds the sticks. Yeah. But, you know, because right. he doesn't right. like to play on Beatles on stuff. On Beatles stuff, yeah. But you're right. I mean, the movie sucked. It was okay in terms of music. Yeah, for, it's not for a, a little... it, it works better as, like, the Magical Mystery Tour. It's the exact same thing, except it's longer. You watch the music yeah. vignettes and you skip the rest That's of the movie. That's what you right? do with it. That's what that movie's about. <laughs> well, you know what we did? We watched Magical Mystery Tour, and we actually did a Mystery Science Theater 3000. I, you must know what that is. Yeah. And oh, yeah. We, yeah, and we just turned the sound down, and we did all of the... <laughs> and it, it was actually better. I, 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 thought, was. I, I thought it was a better movie. I mean, the movie is good as, as little again little music videos because yes. where else yeah. like Paul said where else are you going to see I Am The Walrus yeah. he said yeah. live but yeah. you know sort of live yeah. the yeah. Lennon thing you know back to that briefly uh, sure. to answer your question they played us a cassette and then uh, me and Rick are out in the studio and they're all in the booth like smoking cigarettes or whatever they do in there and, and it was, Rick was just like you know we could try to do this riff here ding, and eat, ding, type of thing and wow. you know, I was like yeah you know kind of a, this kind of feel and and tempo, and then then uh, we got those guys in the room and explained it to them. Kind of, I told Tony Levin was there, and I just said, you know, I said, kind of like here's my bass drum pattern, you know. And I said, John had given a sheet music, and I said, what's is there a bridge in here? Well, show me the bridge. What do you mean? Don't you ever do sessions? And I was like, no, I'm in a rock band. We make our own records, you know. We will play. And stuff. But Tony was real nice, and George Small was real nice, and John played rhythm live, and we started cutting the track, and I had him in my cans, and. It reminded me exactly like when 
we backed up Chuck Berry like about seven years earlier. It was just like, this guy is a perfect rhythm guitar player. All I got to do is just play along with this guy. So it was like painless, you know. Yeah, he has the yeah. best right arm in history of music, oh, probably. Yeah. It was just like such a pleasure, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And it was like, you know, what tempo you want to set? Uh, whatever, you, whatever you think it should be. It was like, oh, man, you know, keys of the kingdom here type of thing. And, uh, you know, he was real cool about that. And then, of course, now whenever I hear it, you know, Someone count this off, and I, I point, I always go, that's me, I'm someone. <laughs> and, uh, but when we were cutting Yoko's tune, Tony Levin had this intro, this bass riff, and he's like, I warm up with this, I've been doing this for 10 years, and we've never been able to get it on a record, and this is really complicated thing. And so we're messing around with this, trying to use that as a first verse, and the band comes in, and Yoko's in the vocal booth, and John was, was in the producer's chair, and he gets on the mic and goes, Mother dear, he goes, why don't you do Tony's first verse and then do the boys' arrangement for the rest of the song because he was calling me and Rick the boys. And uh, Yoko just turned to John on her mic and just goes, fuck you very much, John. And everybody just started laughing and all that. Cause, and she, you know, they could do that. And uh, we all thought that was pretty funny. And John laughed too, so that was good, you know. That's but, cool. Uh, Did you have that moment? I mean, John talks about... Um, I think when he met Chuck Berry for the first time, I think it was Chuck, when he said, you know, we saw him do something, and I said, you know, oh, it talks. Yeah. Did you? Oh, did, yeah. Yeah. So what was that like? Right when I met him, it was just like, well, there he is, smaller than I thought he'd be, sounds just like him, you know, just like, <laughs> whoa, boy, you know, that is him, you know, and stuff. And, At uh, that point, really thin, too. You know, yeah, he's looking good. He really was looking good. You know. And now, obviously... That take of you guys wasn't used on the album, but later yeah. put out with the anthology, and then you guys end up doing a video. <laughs> yep, <laughs> that weird Dean Carr video. Yeah, yeah we all had beards and stuff. Yeah, we went over to Japan after the first sessions, and news got out that this was happening, and, uh, and then we came back the next week, you know, to cut another couple tracks, and John went. I think I got enough done here for the record, so we're going to skip the last couple. But thanks for coming in, you know. And so then we went home, but. Uh, you know, it was, Yoko thought we were going to cash in on John or no. something. And 20 years later, Sean shows up at a gig in Philly, and he goes, I can't believe you got, he told us to the roadies, because we weren't there at Soundcheck, he came by at Soundcheck, and he goes, I can't believe my dad was cool enough to work with those guys. And we, uh. we were just like, my roadie said, we told him you got it backwards, kid. You know, <laughs> uh, the, band, the band was freaking out about working with your dad. What, you know, that was, you got it all wrong here. But, uh, you know, so it's kind of like that. But Rick, Rick was putting his lead on. He was doubling his lead on, on losing you. And, of course, they only put one on when they mixed it, but it's meant to be two guitar solo, a double thing where it kind of flanges back and forth. And me and John were sitting in the booth, and he goes, God, this guy's great. He goes, I did Cold Turkey with Eric Clapton, and he, he froze up, and he'd only play one riff the whole session. <laughs> and I was like, you don't have to worry about that with Rick. And I said, you know, he'll play more than one lick. And uh, he said, you want to smoke a joint? And I was like, I was like, fuck, you know, we've been in Canada for the last week, and they don't have pot up there. I was like, yeah, you know, torch that sucker up. And uh, he whips out this guitar, and he goes, this is my day tripper guitar. And I'm just like, oh. yeah. Man, I said, oh man, day trip. I said, yeah, that's number ten in Phoenix, and his head like swivels around. He goes, what do you mean? And I said, we put out this EP this summer, and the company put this live version of Day Tripper in with it. I said, and lo and behold, it's number ten in Phoenix. I said, uh, it wasn't even a legit single. I said, it came out with this EP we put out, but uh, I don't know what he thought of that. But you know, he was kind of surprised to hear that. Well, he didn't put you on the record, so you know what he thought of that. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Actually, he you know, probably thought ka-ching. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> 
Really? Well, compared to the record, you know, that our version of Losing You really wouldn't have fit in very good on that thing. And then, of course, the ultimate cringe is he made Andy Newmark and Earl Slick, he made those guys play along with that thing and try and get a take like ours. Yeah. They finally gave up on that idea and then just cut it their own version. You know? What did you but, think uh, of that version? I thought it was not too great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it really... Compared to ours, I, yeah. I didn't like yeah. it. Well, yours is I nastier. I don't it's ballsier. It's ballsier. It's, it's, it's just the superior version of that track, especially because of what that track is it's about. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's you know, it fits, and in a way, it's kind of the the odd man out on the album as it is now because it's just a different tone than a lot of the what's on the record. It's a nastier. Version. It's a nastier. Yeah. yeah. You no, know, I mean the song itself right, is kind right. of the odd thing out on the album. Oh yes, yes, yes. But with the cheap trick version, it actually was much more close to what it quote should have been. Should have been. I right. felt. Yeah. Well, uh, the other my other question you played on Yoko's song, we've never heard it. She's never released it. What is it closer to like you know plastic? It's pretty band? much the way it is on the record. Uh, she handed me and Rick a piece of sheet music just with chords and melody on it. And Rick came up like all the Rick came up with all the riffs and everything, and then it was just a matter of getting the arrangement together. She had one little weird spot in there, and our version, yeah, it's it's not quite there. It's more like a demo than than a finished version. Yeah. But they were meant to crossfade, and and so yeah, we had to we did hers after we did losing you because one was going to go into the other, and possibly the reason ours didn't go on because we never were told the reason. Possibly the reason was was because we didn't really nail her song so both of them weren't you know they, they were meant to go together as way so if they told they you to they it. told you that john told you that or yoko told you that even then that those songs were mixed together because it's a nice yeah. contrast if you think about oh yeah you know, i'm losing you and i'm moving on it's like yeah okay <laughs> yeah. yeah i'm losing you, know, you and go screw yourself yeah. i'm moving on yeah. right they're the same tempo and they were supposed to one was supposed to crossfade into the other that was the initial concept Wow. Well, doesn't Andy Newmark do that with that little drum solo and he cr- into both songs, you know, from out of one into the other? Yeah. He, the record, you know, he does yeah. a little fill. How come we haven't heard it, by the way? Is, will, will you ever hear it? It's up to Yoko. What's that? The, uh, your version of I'm, I'm moving, moving on. on. I've got it on. I have a cassette of it, yeah. Ooh. Oh, well. All right. All right. So we'll, we will we'll hear it at some point. Yeah, we'll talk later. <laughs> <laughs> our, our version of Losing You, of course, has a fade that goes on for at least another minute. Oh, really? Cool. cool. The, the oh, guitar, really? Rick's doing that, dun, 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 and John starts doing it with him, and it just keeps going and going and going. Oh, we're going on forever. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> well, uh, real quickly, though, Bunny, you did the work on the Yoko track, and, you know, I've got to say, uh, you're a Beatles fan, and Beatles fans have conflicting feelings or had conflicting feelings about Yoko, but you're, as a musician, going in, what was your preconceived thought of, of Yoko and, and was it very different once you actually got to meet her and work with her or were you kind of always a fan? You know, we, we never we didn't dislike Yoko in any way we knew uh, from doing the first album with Jack, cause, you know, he worked on Imagine he did the Invisible Strings sure, and did Yoko's album that they were doing at the same time basically mixed that thing he said, yeah, you know, they'd do John's thing in the day and then go over and do Yoko's at night, you know, kind of thing and, you know, Yoko was part of the package and all that and and in the studio, when we were doing uh, Moving On, it gets to the very end, and she goes, Moving On! She starts going into her, her thing. And all four of us playing out there, we just all kind of looked at each other and smiled and nodded, like, now we're there. All yeah. right. And That's it was cool. really cool when she did it. I was like, yeah, now we're in here with Yoko. <laughs> That's uh, cool. Funny, That's funny, yeah, was, you know. Interviews with Andy Newmark about those sessions, he, he said many times that John said to him, play like Ringo. Did John say that to you while you're doing I'm Losing You and or I'm Moving On? Not a word. 
Not a word. Cool. Not a word. Okay. Just Green. play whatever you want. Yeah, just play whatever you want. And, you know, I was already playing like Ringo, so he didn't have to tell me. <laughs> uh, I mean, Ringo's my default when I'm in a studio and I'm experimenting or trying stuff. The first thing I do, you know, is how would Ringo do it? And then if that doesn't work, then move on from there. But I never, probably never got past that in there. I only had this one lick, and it was a uh, bop, boom, 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 this lick going into a bridge or at the end of the courses on a fade and Tony was doing like this doing this thing so I was kind of just playing along with him on the licks and stuff and instead of doing a lick like before the bridge I did a cymbal crash to set up the vocal because that's kind of where I came from was uh, if there's any singing involved there's no drum rolling involved at the same time it, it makes for sonic soup you know sure. playing, so, playing sure. to the song like Ringo yeah. did yeah yeah playing for the singer you know. so I have to talk about your solo album it's a really eclectic album, Greetings from Venezuela. This started in the 70s, an idea to do this kind of thing, didn't it? Yeah, me and Rick Ross talking about, you know, getting together and getting Bon Scott and Roger Chapman and some guys together, Mike Pato and some guys, and making a record of cool songs with singers that had gravel in their throat and stuff. <laughs> and uh, and we just never got around to it, of course, and all that. And uh, So when, when the Hall of Fame called uh, a year ago last December, and then the office calling, yeah, you know, Cheap Trick's going to coincide a record with that, and I thought, well, geez, and I'm going to piggyback Cheap Trick. And <laughs> That's kind of something isn't it? out. And, and uh, I didn't start it until January, and they're like, yeah, you know, we need it like in six weeks. And I was like, hey, boy. Mm. You know, so uh, I had a list of tunes. I had 100 tunes on a piece of paper, and I made some phone calls. You know, I had a couple different bands I work with, and I called, started calling singers, and you know, just kind of literally threw it together pretty quick. Uh, Looking back, of course, I wish I'd started it six months earlier. And, and but there you go. You know, I made a record like we used to. You know, you go in and cut a couple tracks, and you cut singles, and then when you get enough of them, you got an album. You know, it's kind of like that. It's amazing, though, because you, I mean, you got I mean, obviously the original Cheap Trick vocalist on yeah. there who sounds incredible. Well, Zeno's good. Yeah, yeah he's a good guy. And you got Hanson, who I personally, you know, you you mentioned Hanson, and everybody says, "Oh my God, Mbop." But you worked before, I think, with Zach. Yeah, we did Tinted Windows with uh yeah with uh, Taylor. Yeah. Oh, and is there going to be another ever another Tinted Windows album coming out <laughs> ever? I uh, asked Adam if he's finished the songs yet. Uh, I <laughs> subbed the Fountains of Wayne gig about three summers ago, and Adam said, "Yeah, James is ready." And I was like, well, "You know, me and Taylor are ready. I uh, got any songs?" And yeah, I got to get the, I got to get those songs written. And I was like, "Well, give us a call, you know, when they're cool. ready." Cool. Because someone That's actually asked me today to ask you that because I said we were going to be interviewing you on our Facebook page. Where we have like thousands of people, and someone said, "Ask him if there's going to be another Tinted Windows album." But yeah, that's he, like power pop at its finest. Oh, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. But him or me, I mean, Adam categorized it as unironic power pop, so it's not. There's no like wise guy power pop. Well, it's all right. Tacky. I'm going to get back to this, but you mentioned Adam. What'd you think of the Monkeys' new album? I loved it. I thought it was good. I thought it was a little underproduced, but uh, I'm thinking Adam probably did it on the monkey's budget. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. overall, I'm 95% happy with it. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to get I mean, back to you. He owns a studio in New York. He owns Stratosphere, you know, so Adam knows how to how to probably lose his ass in a recording studio because he owned one in Manhattan. Oh, yeah, when you're, I guess when you're pigeonholed, you're, yeah. you're going to do what you can. Yeah. I, yeah, think right. it, I, also, I, I think the extra bonus cuts that were on every release of the album were actually better than some of the stuff on the album. I agree. Uh, I agree. But anyway, getting back, Hanson... Yeah, Adam made that call, what, the two bonus tracks. Uh, he made the call, which to put on and leave off. So, yeah. so good. But everything is power pop. It was it was really good stuff on the monkeys. But Thanks. I want to get back to uh, to the Hanson doing Him or Me 
unbelievable. I mean, who would have thought? Well, yeah, me, Mr. Wise Guy Producer, I sent that track off to them. I sent a Dylan tune to Dave Perner, and <laughs> I sent a couple to uh, the guy from the Damwells, and... Uh, I, n- I never bothered to ask these people, what key do you want them in? I just, we, <laughs> we cut the tracks, and I just sent them the tracks. And then it dawned on me, God, I hope they sing in those keys, you know, <laughs> type of thing. And that, that could have been a train wreck, you know. Especially and, uh, with Armenia City in the Sky being one of those. If he did that in the original key, that's, you know, yeah, oh I, my God. I knew Stuart could do that, because we, we did right. that in Candy Gold a couple times. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. that makes sense. I was covered, right. I was covered on that one, you know, but... <laughs> But Hanson, I think you said you originally sent it, and then they came back with all three of them on it? Yeah, I sent it. I thought just Taylor would do it, and all three of them did it, and, you know, different guys sing lead and different parts of it and stuff. And, Sounds uh, great. Then I tried to give them an advance on royalties. I was like, well, I'm going to pay each guy like 100 bucks per track advance, just in case this thing ever makes a nickel. And they, they wouldn't take a penny. Really? Guys. That's cool. They're, such, they're the nicest That's guys cool. in the world. And they also, I have to put a plug in for them, because they are not Mbop anymore. No. They are they, some of their stuff. Yeah, but yeah. some of their stuff is incredible. And their new album's coming out. I've heard some of it. It's yeah. just, they are yeah. so good. But, yes. I mean, oh, you yeah. have, also, we love the Bee Gees, and you have a Bee Gees tune on here that, you know, is not a typical Bee Gees tune to cover. Oh, yeah. I mean, idea. I mean, and and you've got, I mean, Robert Pollard from Guided by Voices, too. Oh, he's the man. Yeah, he is, I mean, talk about a prolific. I heard that, and I said, well, I could see you two guys working together on a, a regular basis. Pollard is just, he's so prolific, and he's, oh, you he's know. Oh, he's fun, too. He likes, to, he likes to knock that stuff off, and bam, bam, the stuff's yeah. done. You know, he, he came in the studio with a case of beer. <laughs> like 10 in the morning, and uh, he was done by about 2, you know, and uh, half the case was probably gone. Him and the guy he was with, they were just knocking him back. But he, he, he really knows how to do it and do it fast and well. And, yeah, the guy the guy's a great writer, you know, and he's a nice guy. So. That's I, cool. I could easily see you working with, like, Andy Partridge, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, it'd be fun. XTC is just, uh, you know, so weird but great as well, you know? But, if uh, I could do that, I'd have to call Todd and get him in on it, too, because... Yeah, you know, Todd and XTC. I, I, he always had good stories about those guys. <laughs> I tell you what, but uh, I mean, Todd has stories also about the Beatles and oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, many of those and Sod Runtelstundel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that... yeah, exactly. You know, talk to him about Badfinger. I don't, I don't know. There you go. I don't right. think so. <laughs> so people, obviously, your album is still out there in print, obviously, and you can get it everywhere, right? Uh, got me. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> Come on, it's here. It's yeah, it came weird. out. It came out like uh, almost ten months ago, and uh, I don't know if it sold ten or ten hundred. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I went and I did one gig for it and did a bunch of press. But it was like, well, you know, you should play L.A. and New York, and it, it would cost me like ten thousand dollars a gig. And you know, there's wow. eight singers on the record, and to yeah. get four of them is just a headache. So I, I had to do my solo album and. I'm going to start another one someday, but I just haven't got around to it yet. Well, we'll tell you this, and, you know, we'll, we'll cross our fingers, but we're telling folks it's a really fine record. Yeah. And, well, thank you. And thank you. truth be told, we've, we've actually seen some fun results on Amazon. Every once in a while, we'll see a little bump happen when, when, we, we, recommend when we recommend something. So let's, cool. see how, let's see how this goes. But well, we one better have it together, or I better take the hundred or so copies I have here and throw them up there, <laughs> one or the other, really. <laughs> Bonnie, you're the archivist for Cheap Trick. Are there any other Beatles covers in the archive? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, we did those two shows that first year at the Hollywood Bowl, and I we had three days off after that. And uh, the night after the first show, I turned to the manager and said, you know, if we don't go into Capitol Studios Sunday 
and cut this whole record with Jeff Emmerich were crazy. So we did. Wow. So we got the whole Sgt. Pepper album in the can with Jeff Emmerich. Wow. The only thing not done on it, I think, is probably the orchestration and She Leaving Home and uh, Within You Without You and stuff. And, uh, boy, you know, I'm surprised those clowns that are managing them now have not accessed those things and mixed it. And I'm, I don't know why they didn't put it out about a month ago, you know, but Good we got it in the can, basically. Wow. Yeah, it sounds great. Well, maybe you know, they so. will. I mean, who knows? I'm sitting here with a multi, so <laughs> I don't think they're going to. I haven't heard from them yet, but, uh, you know, well, I hope, they should. You know, they should. I hope they hear from you. Now, I, I have to ask you about your cover of Cold Turkey because you guys extended it. You made it a little more eerie than John's in, in some places. I was wondering how you guys chose. I mean, I was on a Lennon tribute album. Why'd you pick that song out of all the songs you could have picked of John Lennon's? And, well, we, uh, and why'd you change the of, arrangement a little bit? Yeah, we used to kind of own that song back in the early 70s when we did it in the Midwest here. And Robin did it just great. And we had a great, you know, we did a great version of it, basically the Plastic Ono version. And then, uh, so we went to Chad called up about the, the the Benefit album. That was a benefit for pets, I believe it was, for dogs. And, uh, yeah, we went in with Julian Raymond and he said, look, you know, let's, let's do something with us a little different. So we kind of deconstructed it and built it back up again. That's kind of how we did it. So that's why we did it like that, was so it would be just not a straight cover of Cold Turkey, because we knew we weren't going to do that one any better, you know, the original Apple single. So uh, it's kind of like, yeah, well, we got to do something with this that we haven't, we haven't done with it yet. So, we, you know, more like a, you know, more like the, maybe the Velvets would have started. Oh, well, interesting. Yeah. That's well put. You know, yeah. That's a very something good Something like that. And, uh, you know, Robin messed with the melody a little and stuff, you know. But, but on the end, like every fourth time, we kind of do the bam, bam. You know, we tried to keep some of the elements that are, that are on the record that people don't even know about anyway. Yeah. You know, we love the song, so, yeah, it was, it was fun to just kind of get a blank canvas and a handful of paints and, and go wild, you guys. So we did. And you know, take an ownership and, of it. You and take we did a video with yeah. Larry Clark, too, which is really difficult to find. But the guy that did, uh, what was it, Kids or whatever that thing was, the the drugstore movie. Or oh, yeah, the movie. Yeah. Yeah. We just did a cool video and stuff. So, yeah, the whole thing was a lot of fun. You know, it's kind of like a paid vacation. Here, we'll give you some money. Go cut a John Lennon track. Okay? <laughs> wow, that's good. So, before we wrap, I just got to ask you, politics aside and all the garbage aside, was it cool to be inducted into the Hall of Fame and actually play with the guys again? Oh, yeah, that was a gash, you know. And it's, it's fun to get up and play again. And it was like, oh, yeah, here we are again, you know, type of thing. And... This guy was speeding up a little, and this guy was nailing it to the floor, and this right. guy was doing that. Was, nothing had changed, you know, really. And <laughs> and before the show at Soundcheck, I asked Rick, I said, Now, Surrender, you guys don't end that any different, do you? No, come on, Bunny. You've only been gone six years. <laughs> nothing ever changes. And we did it twice at Soundcheck, and once at the show that night, and the ending was different every time. So but you guys sounded never great. Changed. But you sounded you know, really good. Hey, thanks. You know, we, we had a lot of fun, you know. And, uh, That's good. It was good. It was good to put a little closure there. That was good. That's yeah. great to hear. That's cool. All right, well, we don't want That's to keep cool. you much longer. We, we really appreciate the time. This has been a blast. Totally a blast. Uh, like, like Bunny, I mean, so, so excited to have you on, and, and thanks so much. And uh, so for this episode of uh, Fab Four Free For All, I have been your moderator, Mitch Axelrod, and joining me has been... Rob Leonard. And... Tony Chiguardo. And so, so happy that we had on... Bunny Carlos, so uh, really appreciate it. Cheers. Fab Four Free For All was edited and produced by Tony Chiguardo at Word of Mouth Studios in Westbury, New York. 
The opening and closing theme is My Dolly by the band The Badge, featuring longtime listener Jeff Slate, available on its debut album Digital Retro and recent Best Of compilation, as well as from the Fab Four Free For All website. Thanks for listening to Fab Four Free For All.